0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from the firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at Goldman Sachs. On today's episode, we are talking oil. Uh, Despite some turmoil in the Mideast, oil prices are at their lowest level in years. While consumers are seeing an immediate benefit at the pump, there are significant long-term implications for importers and exporters that will influence the global economy for decades to come. I'm joined to discuss these trends by Jeff Curry, Global Head of Commodities Research at Goldman Sachs, who's here to help us understand this new oil order, a phrase he coined. Jeff, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Jeff, you wrote a piece called The New Oil Order. What do you mean by that exactly?
1: Well, there's three aspects to it. First is that when we think about the shale technologies, they are transformational. They've basically taken an industry that was very capex-intensive and created in such that it is more variable cost intensive. And why is that important? Because basically it turns oil production into a manufacturing process. You can dial it up and dial it down in response to price action, which makes the industry far more nimble than what it was several years ago. The second aspect is that when we look at the composition of demand, You know, historically, we used to view the BRICS as being baseload demand, guaranteed demand coming year in, year out, and all the margin of adjustment occurred in the United States. Today, these roles have been turned upside down. Because of the shale revolution in the U.S. approaching energy independence, the U.S. is now baseload demand, and the margin of adjustment is China and the rest of the emerging markets. The third and final reason really has to do with the competition or the structure of the market. The supply curve for shale is incredibly flat, um, which this actually takes away the market power that OPEC had previously. Because if they add supply or take supply off the market with a flat supply curve, it has really no impact on price. In contrast, in the old days, the supply curve was very steep. So when OPEC put oil on the market or took it off, it would have a significant impact on price. And so what we're witnessing right now is a, an adjustment process. It's taking place across the entire industry to these new technologies, the new composition of demand, and
0: the new market structure the market faces. Last year in June, Goldman Sachs hosted the North American Energy Summit, uh, where we brought together policymakers from Canada, Mexico, the United States to talk about the opportunities and some of the costs and risks in this new energy market that we're facing. You've been talking about these trends for some time now. In fact, you spoke at the North American Energy Summit about what is happening, what we're seeing happening right now. Why is it happening now, even though we've been talking about these trends for a while? Why are prices all of a sudden reflecting this new oil order? Well,
1: I think there were several factors that made oil late because we've seen a lot of commodities already move and gas in particular moved back in 2011 and 2012. And part of that has to do with the stages of the production process. The shale producers first discovered gas and then they discovered liquids and then finally they turned to oil. Why did we see this progression? It has to do with the way the technologies work. They simply break a fissure in the shale rock and what's going to flow out of that fissure first? the least dense elements, i.e. gas. Gases are the least dense elements on the planet Earth. Well, they produced so much gas, they finally ran out of demand and crushed the prices, as we saw in 11 and 12. Um, Then they opened up the rock a little bit further and out flowed what we call natural gas liquids, things like propanes, butanes. So it wasn't a coincidence that they got gas first. Gas was the first to flow out. Then finally they produced so many of the liquids, like the propanes and butanes, they finally ran out of demand there, such that they broke open the rock further and finally discovered they can pull oil out relatively cheaply. So it was really only since really 2011 that we've seen the big increases in oil, which is part of the reason why oil was late to fall. The other factor that made oil late to fall was the fact that you had significant supply disruptions in the form of Iran and Libya that kept the market tighter
0: far longer than what it would have otherwise been. So when I was in high school, we debated um, whether or not the United States should achieve energy independence. Uh, and that was some time ago. I won't tell you exactly how long ago. But the debate then was all around reducing um, the, the demand side and developing alternative fuels. And now here we are uh, in, in the United States is moving closer to energy independence on the back of oil. What does that tell us about the technology and the, and the future of this industry?
1: Well, I think one of the, the key issues here is that the shale revolution has made a clean burning fuel like natural gas very, very low cost, and in the current environment it has been cheaper than coal going back to 2009, and that turns everything upside down, everything from environmental policy to even processing, because many of the processing technologies and petrochemicals, refining, were all based around much heavier fuels. And so when we think about what the opportunity is going forward, it actually creates a difficult environment for renewables and other type of cleaner burning technologies because now they're competing with relatively low-cost natural gas and even in more recently relatively low-cost oil. Oil is still far more expensive. So I wouldn't, you know, we've seen the pullback in price, but it still is much more expensive than some of the gas technologies. And so what we would argue in terms of going forward, Um, we should see a mix, I like to say, diversify across these different technologies. Obviously, gas is the dominant one because it's clean burning and it is scalable. Um, But one thing that gas does that actually benefits the renewables is that it can deal with the intermittency issues with renewables, i.e. when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing, You can turn on a gas-fired turbine within 30 minutes to be able to meet that electricity um, requirement. So while natural gas clearly has changed the the landscape in terms of what we're going to consume and made made itself more competitive against renewables, we argue towards a diversified approach, Um, use natural gas along with renewables such as solar, um, such as wind and look at in terms of trying to build out a broad-based grid. Um, in terms of where, where does nuclear fit into this, this broader picture, you would need to see gas prices get back above $8 in MMBTU before nuclear really becomes competitive. And so the focal point really is the gas technologies, um, solar and wind from an um, electricity generation perspective, and then from transportation, be a combination of electricity, um, some of the natural gas-based fuels, as well as oil.
0: What does the U.S. need to do to build out the infrastructure on the demand side? Obviously, there's been a lot put into the supply side, but, but what, what kind of policies would help us get uh, to a position where we're really able to utilize uh, the, the energy boom we're seeing? Well, you know, One of the
1: interesting facts that came out of the North American Energy Summit was that when we look at the investment in the upstream, which is the production of oil and gas, we actually find that uh, the United States... In North America more broadly um, represents more than 50% of global capex in oil and gas production. Um, More interestingly, when you look at how much is being spent in North America, North America outspent. Russia and Saudi Arabia combined 10 to 1. So clearly the U.S. is producing and spending a lot to be able to produce oil and gas. Now I think as you pointed pointed out, um, one of the real issues going forward is we need to build out the infrastructure on the demand side. When we look at the spending patterns on the downstream or the demand side for oil and gas, we find that Asia and the Middle East outspent North America 15 to one. So the U.S. is spending on all the oil and gas production, but the Middle East and Asia are spending on all the demand to consume this oil and gas. And part of the reason for that is that the forward economics on these projects are not clear in the United States. They're far more clear in the Middle East or Asia and give you some ideas of why that's the case, they have long-term off-take agreements for supply. Um, prices are guaranteed, labor is available. So when we look at the US, because of the policy uncertainty uh, beyond three plus years, we look at most of the investment occurs in things that are quick turnaround projects such as shale production. Again, remember I made the point earlier that we look at shale, it's what we call fast cycle production. I make an investment today, 30 days later I can have output. And so when we look at the return potential from shale, we only need to think about the economics on a 12 month horizon. When we think about the economics of these downstream demand projects, let's say like fertilizer plants, petrochemicals, it's a decade long return. So we need to have confidence of what the world looks like in five, 10 years from now. And part of the reason why that is so uncertain, and going back to your question of what does policy need to do, the United States needs to have a very clear environmental and energy policy. And the reason for that is to create stable incredible rules that allow investment to come in and have confidence about what the future will look like you know examples would be um, rules around um, fracking and water use rules Uh, so therefore people can be confident that we're not going to see fracking being banned tomorrow but be done safely so i can make investments today to consume this cheap gas no one will be around other ones include methane emissions Methane emissions is important because it's far more potent than CO2 and it comes out of the gas process. So if we really want to harness natural gas, we really need to do it in the context of containing uh, methane emissions. Um, Pipeline approvals, expedite these. Um, Clearly having access to transportation will be very important in being able to develop out the demand side. The um, fourth point has to do with the transportation fuels. Um, Right now, when we look at Ethanol made from natural gas, and it is cheaper than ethanol made from corn, we cannot use it because of the renewable fuel standards. So shifting uh, rules like that to be able to accommodate the new technologies. In other words, the, t- the policies have not kept up with the technology. And then finally, power generation, You know, focusing on long-term
0: contracts and create an environment that stimulates investment in excess capacity. Jeff, part of the new oil order is a real shift in geopolitics. The United States all of a sudden finds itself in the position of being the swing producer, with more ability to influence global oil prices than it has seen in decades. And oil-producing nations, the OPEC countries and others, all of a sudden find themselves with a reduced status. How should policymakers here in the United States and in OPEC be thinking differently about the new oil order?
1: Actually, the way I like to describe it is shale is OPEC's friend. And one of the reasons for that, it is relatively high-cost production. So it will support prices in that $60 to $80 barrel range on a longer term basis. Which from an OPEC perspective, particularly core OPEC, that is actually a good thing. And so when we looked at the fact that the OPEC meeting resolved with no cut, it should have been expected. One, you know, we look at shale, it's scalable, um, which is that whole point I was making before that the supply curve is flat, which means that OPEC no longer has the same pricing power that it had before. So it wants to be a second mover, not a first mover. So from that perspective, uh, it it made sense. And again, as I may have been point before, shale is their friend. It supports prices um, at relatively historically high levels. And and then I think the, the, the third issue is again, the market structure of the industry has changed. It's far more competitive than it was before. And that has several implications. One, it means that prices are likely to be more stable. Um, we look at this pullback yes it feels relatively large but on a historical basis it really isn't you go back to 08 09 we saw prices drop from 147 down to 32 or even back in 07 we went from 77 to 49 or in 03 we went from 40 down to 17. Um, so historically this is a relatively smooth, orderly pullback in prices. And I think in terms of thinking about the long-run health of the, the economy, the fact that we've taken out that volatility is actually a good
0: thing. It will create a much smoother environment. So on the, on the debate today between whether the, the price move we've seen recently is demand-driven or supply-driven, you'd basically take the latter.
1: Absolutely. When you look at it, at it you know, we have to go back to the mid-1980s to have another supply-driven market. And that's, that's important because supply events are very different than demand events in the sense that supply events you can see happening out over the horizon. Most of the surplus and the imbalances we're all referring to that's been driving prices are likely to occur in 2015 and beyond. They're not here today. In contrast, demand events hit you over the head like a sledgehammer. You don't know when they're going to happen. And so that they, they create a, you know, a dynamic that creates a quick surplus market. And the way the market prices them are very different. Um, essentially, the spot prices collapse and you blow out the spreads on the forward curve of the commodity markets. Um, we're not seeing that this time. It's pricing in the forwards because it's trying, trying to price the future. And so we look back at you know, other supply-driven events, which I would argue the beginning of the 2000s with another supply bull market, it was driven by long-term prices, not by the front. Because we looked out in the future, we could see that they were imbalanced. But what I want to emphasize is that the markets are doing their job. We actually never did see those severe imbalances that were forecasted during the 2000s because the back-end prices basically made them self-negating. Similarly, what we're seeing right now is the market's trying to create adjustment before the surplus has ever arrived. But again, I think as your point. Supply-driven bear markets are very rare. Uh, we don't see them very often, and so we're gonna learn a lot through this process. And I think the next six months are gonna be particularly fascinating.
0: What role does the dollar play in all this? Right now, the Fed is looking at a pretty strong US economy and yet uh, lower oil prices mean lower inflation at a time when they're trying to encourage a little more inflation. Um, so, what, what, what is, as the Fed thinks about higher interest rate environment, uh, what does that mean for the dollar? Well, I'm going to answer first question. Actually, I, the, the first question I'm going
1: to answer is, you know, is, is this good inflation or deflation or bad deflation? I, I always view supply-driven, you know, deflationary pressures as being good. And I think what you have to balance it against is the improvement in GDP you get out of it. And I think that's one thing that's missing in many of these debates over the concerns about oil prices falling. Falling oil prices, because it's a supply-driven event, are good things for you know everybody involved, except for obviously the the, the producing um, you know, countries. So with that, that aside, let's talk about it's a big tax cut. It's a big tax cut, and exactly. it's a
0: progressive tax cut, in that uh, people with lower incomes tend to spend more of their discretionary dollars Absol- on fuel.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's go back to the question: you know, How does the dollar dollar play into this? I've always made the argument that oil causes the dollar the dollar causes the non-energy markets. And let's go over why I make that that argument, is that when we think about um, oil, and by the way, this argument is starting to have less relevancy as the U.S. moves towards energy independence. If we go back pre-2008, the U.S. was a net importer of 14 million barrels a day of oil and products uh, against a market that was a little bit above 80 million barrels per day. So a very large share of the world's supply was going into the U.S. So what happens when oil prices rose? The amount of dollars leaving the United States would increase, so it would put downward pressure on the dollar relative to other currencies. So that's the first point. The second point is that many of the producing countries never repatriated those dollars back in the U.S. They went into Europe, into Asia, and other parts of the world, which did what? Bid up the Euro or or the Asian currencies relative to the U.S. dollar. Then the third leg of this is that the ECB targets headline inflation while the Federal Reserve targets core inflation. What's the difference between the two? Oil prices. So when oil prices would rise, the ECB would become more hawkish relative to the Fed. So this all pointed to the causality going from oil to the dollar. Now, why do I make the point that um, the dollar drives the non-energy markets like metals and agriculture? And the reason for that has to do with the structure of the industries. When we think about oil, it's a very capex intensive industry with very relatively low variable cost. But the way I like to think about it is you would spend a lot of capital expenditures to drill your well, tie it into the pipeline grid, and then all you would be left with was donkey going up and down out in the middle of this field, no labor. And so very capital intensive, low variable cost. In contrast, when we look at the non-energy markets, particularly let's take um, mining for metals like copper, your capital costs are digging the pit. After the pit has been dug, Now you have very large costs with both uh, trucks and miners and everything. And guess what? Those costs are in local currencies. Let's say like the Chilean peso to give you an example. So variable costs are local, capital costs are going to be US dollar terms. So now what happens when let's say the dollar weakens and the Chilean peso begins to strengthen? The cost of paying those miners, those truck drivers all go up. So the cost structure of the non-energy market rises as the dollar begins to weaken. And so when we look at, the, at these causalities, you know, oil to the dollar, dollar to the non-energy markets, now everything is working in reverse. So as the Chilean peso begins to weaken, what happens to the cost of producing copper? It goes down. Or as the Australian dollar begins to weaken, the cost of producing iron ore goes down. And so now the input costs of producing oil are lower. So like today, The cost of steel, the cost of cement and everything is far lower than what it was a year ago. So it's a reinforcing dynamic now to the downside.
0: Jeff, over the the last several months, we've seen renewed commitment to international policy around climate change. It's not exactly Kyoto Accord, although the Kyoto Accord didn't produce much actionable policy, but a lot of countries are making voluntary commitments. How is that debate liable to play out? given what's happening uh, around lower oil prices, which presumably over time will mean uh, uh, less pressure around energy efficiency?
1: I, I don't think they're, they're, they're going to abate, uh, because when we look at you know, most countries in the world have done some for what we call CAFE standards, in which emissions out of automobiles or emissions out of, out of generation um, is, is being focused on. In fact, the way we like to think about it, It's a part of the industry. So we think about you want to minimize emissions and minimize costs at the same time. Do the joint um, problems together and find out which technologies are superior when we think about it on a longer term basis. I don't think that the the debate's gonna go away. However, I think another important point about the debate, and we saw this with the emissions program that the administration put in place last May, is that the Europeans and the Americans approach this very differently. Um, The Americans do performance targeting which is basically say, hey, we want to reduce emissions by 30% by 2020 from um, the 2005 levels. Um, Actually, it's 2030, excuse me, Um, as opposed to giving rules on how it's going to be done. So when we think about the European Emissions Trading Scheme, um, it was well-defined set of rules that could be followed. Now, I'm not going to get a debate whether they're right or wrong, but the important point here is it takes away the uncertainty in terms of thinking about making investments because they knew how to navigate the rules in, in Europe for right or wrong. But it took out some of the uncertainty. When we think about the approach that the Americans are taking, it still leaves a lot of uncertainty because it leaves it up to the states in terms of creating how they're going to actually respond um, to these new missions targeting. And so in terms of thinking about, you know, a mix going forward, you know, focusing on creating less uncertainty to stimulate the investments and speed up the process.
0: Uh, more federal policy, perhaps, a little less uh, uh, discretion to the states. That's it for this edition of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for joining, Jeff, and we hope to see you again next time. I'm Jake Seward, and thanks for listening.
2: This podcast was recorded on December 15, thousand fourteen. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability therefore